Welcome to Rising Stars, where Miriam Knight, publisher of New Consciousness Review, interviews exciting new voices in the world of progressive and transformational books, films, and ideas who offer intriguing perspectives on life, the universe, and everything in between. Join us as we celebrate the conscious awakening and explore many expressions of consciousness in action. Rising Stars. Our guest today is Lawrence Swaim. Larry is the executive director of the Interfaith Freedom Foundation, a nonprofit established after 9-11 to oppose bias against religious minorities and to advocate religious liberty for all. The IFF is especially engaged in opposing the growth of Islamophobia in the U.S., Swaim has a long history of progressive involvement, including 10 years of union politics with the postal workers. He served for 25 years as a counselor in residential treatment programs for clients suffering from emotional trauma, addictions, and chronic mental illness. He's also written three novels and writes a regular column on religious liberty issues. He's written a trilogy of books on aggression, trauma, and systemic evil. His latest book in the trilogy is called How Finkelstein Broke the Trauma Bond and Beat the Holocaust. This is a difficult book to read, but very appropriate to the news that we are living through today. So I'm very pleased to welcome Lawrence Swain. Welcome, Larry. Good morning, Miriam. Larry, um, what is the trauma bond that is so central to the work of this uh, series of books? Well, it is a um, it is a theory about how people become traumatized and in that process can internalize the aggression that they're enduring. Then the job of the caretaker and of the person seeking recovery is to deconstruct the traumatic memory without acting out the aggression. I might say about this that I think that Freud was wrong. The big problem that humanity is facing is not sexuality, but aggression. We certainly see that everywhere from the, the school ground to our neighborhoods to the world stage. I would totally agree with that. How is is this any different from the, I think it's called the Stockholm Syndrome, where people, no, I forget what the syndrome is, where people in the um, concentration camps started to identify with their captors? Yes. Well, actually, I have a, a chapter on that in Trauma Bond, the second book in the trilogy. Uh, you've got it right. It's the Stockholm uh, Syndrome, but it refers to the fact that a group of people were taken hostage. They were in this hostage situation and in Stockholm, and they started to um, identify with their captors. That is, they started to identify with the people who were holding them captive and actually treating them very badly. Um, but that's a bit of a different situation. We know that people in a hostage situation will identify personally with the aggressor, uh, abused children will identify personally with an aggressor, and battered wives will often identify with the aggressor. But I'm more concerned with a, a, a different process, which is the way many adults identify with aggression itself once they have endured 
uh, aggression of some kind. And so that actually colors how they respond to situations um, that they find threatening. Well, it does. Uh, I found, and this may be changing, but I found that uh, women who have internalized um, uh, aggression very often acted out against themselves, whereas men tend to act out the aggression that they've internalized against others. In fact, men will very often start to identify with, uh, develop a patriarchal worldview and start to identify with violence in the society, violent movements or violent governments, whatever. Uh, so it becomes very problematical. And the people who have these emotional orientations as a result of enduring uh, violence themselves aren't really completely aware of it. You know, mm. They know that something in their personality has changed but they can't really put their finger on it. Now, the aggressions, uh, the, the interplay of, of aggression in the Middle East that we're experiencing, whether through the Islamic State or, or in the Arab-Israeli conflict or even among the Arab states and within the Arab states, um, is kind of central to your book. And... Yeah. Um, you, uh, you're in the unusual position of having both a Jewish daughter and a Muslim daughter. Um, how did that happen? How did that play out in your family? And um, how did you extrapolate from that? Well, it, I can tell you it does have a way of getting your attention. You know, when you stop and look at the, uh, this drift towards worldwide religious war that so many people seem to be invested in. I do have a Jewish daughter. I do have a Muslim daughter. They get along just fine. They have the same values, but they come from different places. And it's um, beyond tragic what is happening when there are individuals who are deliberately exacerbating the, these tensions. If I may just give an example, uh, you will notice that uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu almost invariably refers to the Holocaust when he speaks publicly, when he speaks in front of the United Nations or elsewhere. In fact, that's usually the first thing he does. Uh, and he does that in domestic affairs within Israel as well. And I believe that he and the people in his party are invoking a traumatic memory in a very deliberate way. Uh, they wish to, you know, it is axiomatic that the aggressor invariably thinks of himself as a, or presents himself as a victim. Even if he may have been a victim at one stage, he's holding on to that victimhood to justify his own aggression. Yes, that is correct. Uh, the idea is you are a, you're a victim, then you become a survivor, and I would say that's not enough. You have to go to a third step, which is to become a protagonist in your own life. And that, that enables you, hopefully, to criticize governments or movements or individuals who are essentially demagogic. The, the book contains a number of stories of people who have gone through what you would call systemic evil, who have uh, experienced um, labor camps or... Um, uh, torture, uh, and but the the first story in the book 
is about Norman, Norman Finkelstein that kind of sets the stage for the rest. Um, can you tell us briefly um, how that kind of life story of Norman, Norman Finkelstein um, colors the rest of the book? Well, uh, Norman Finkelstein is a prophetic voice within American uh, cultural life. And uh, his story is quite disturbing in a way because uh, he's now under an inf a kind of um, de facto blacklist. He's not able to teach in, in any university. In any case, let me, tell a, let me tell a little bit about his story. You, you break in if you wish. Uh, Finkelstein's parents were both Holocaust survivors. His father could never talk about it. His mother, on the other hand, talked about it all the time. And she did something else. She regularly compared what had happened to her in Poland and Auschwitz or in the, in the labor camps to things that were happening around her. And she was very aggressive in pointing out the way that systemic evil gets started in society and the way it could get started in the United States. So Finkelstein was very lucky in that uh, respect. He grew up with a strong sense of, of evil, but an equally strong sense that humans can and should fight systemic evil. His mother was a terrific role model in that sense uh, because she was always demonstrating with her life that she can resist and oppose even the strongest forms of evil. And she, and I might add, she never allowed her traumatic memory to guide her behavior, but was instead always talking about the aggression she saw in American society in the present moment. Uh, that's very, very important in overcoming a traumatic memory. You have to talk about what happened, and you have to... Uh, try to look at the world around you and see how it applies to that world. It's a form of making say, sense of of it. Yeah, it's a it's a way of making sense. She was in, in many um, you know it hasn't been until relatively recently that people begin to understand intergenerational, transgenerational, or historical trauma. But uh, tr the trauma of the Holocaust can create symptoms in up to three generations after the original trauma. And I can't say that Norman Finkelstein was a victim of that because he wasn't a victim of any kind. But it was always present, and because of his mother's outspoken nature, he learned at an early age how to recognize it, how to deal with it, and how to manage it without acting out the aggression that is ensconced in it. So, he was a very uh, gifted teacher, and um, what and scholar, in fact. Yes. Uh, what... Well, let me, re let me refer to <laughs> some turning points in his academic career because it's quite interesting. Um, we have just one Princeton. minute before we go to break, so keep that in mind. Yeah. When he was in Princeton, he stumbled upon a book that was the fashion at that time, which was uh, being celebrated by the cultural elite in America and discovered that, in his opinion, it was, all, it was fraudulent. He called it a hoax. Um, I'm referring to the Peters, the Joan Peters book from Time Immemorial. So he decided to write his Ph.D. thesis on it, and he did, and submitted it, and they refused to read it, they being the academics that were guiding him. Mm -hmm. He went to another department in Princeton. They refused to, to read it. And at a certain point, uh, he realized that he was dealing with a social pathology, not just a, a particular book. But interestingly, they graduated him 
without ever reading his PhD thesis. It's <laughs> just that scary. <laughs> Interesting. Can well, you you're going to have to come back after, stay with us until after the break to find out what was so scary about his PhD thesis. We're speaking yeah. with Lawrence Swaim, author of How Finkelstein Broke the Trauma Bond and Beat the Holocaust. We'll be right back after these messages. Free your mind. Expand your soul. Om Times Radio. IOM FM. Have you ever wondered how to change your love paradigm? The secret key is finding a love partnership, not just a regular connection. How do you find these? Through conscious relationships. Ascending Hearts Dating is a dating site for people like you that believes in second chances and a different type of spiritual connection. Try Ascending Hearts for free today at AscendingHearts.com and change your love paradigm. Ascending Hearts, the premier dating community for the spiritually awake. Matt Connerton here. Join Jen Coffee and I twice a week for Matt Connerton Unleashed, a political talk show that's a little different than what you're used to. No liberal or conservative agenda here, just an honest dialogue about truth and how things really work in the world of politics. Matt Connerton Unleashed, every Tuesday and Thursday night at 11 p.m. Eastern on Ohm Times Radio. Do you want to be a better communicator? Do you want to better connect with the important people in your life? Do you want to enrich your relationships? If so, join me, Matthew Cooper, on the Positive Control System Show every Wednesday evening at 11 o'clock p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Ohm Times Radio. I'll meet you there. Being a radio host on IOM FM allows you to build your show on a rich platform with the power of the Internet to fulfill your outreach goals and connect with a very specialized and global online audience, unlimited by time and distance. Ohm Times Radio will provide you with web relevance, a recognizable conscious brand, and with the standard of excellence that has accompanied every single Ohm Times endeavor. Host your show with Ohm Times Radio Network. A conscious lifestyle for a mindful life. Ohm Times Radio. IOM FM. which got him a PhD but alienated him from the academic establishment. What was that all about? Yeah, it's the ones in Princeton, at least, because it, it uh, he found a number of mistakes in the book, and the book was being... In so the Peters celebrated. book, yeah. In the Peters book, yes. And the book is being so celebrated. Apparently, uh, there was so much trauma attached to the whole, the whole business. That, I think uh, you need to tell our listeners what the book was about. Yeah, Peters maintained that there was no such thing as Palestinians. There were just some people who were passing through, basically job seekers. And if that is true, then nobody has to worry about the Palestinian problem and the problem in Israel-Palestine. So it was like an apologia for the sort of ethnic cleansing that took place uh, before the War of Liberation and before and during the War of Liberation in 1948, yes? Yes, it, it completely denied that there was any ethnic cleansing. And also, if there weren't any Palestinians, you didn't have to worry very much about Palestinian claims because, after all, there, weren't, there were no Palestinians. Mm-hmm. So it 
approached her claims approached the frivolous, and there was something ter- terribly wrong with the footnotes. You know, all about 80 footnotes were all falsified in one way, way or another. I think it's enough to say that most experts dismissed the book. But then the question is, why was it so terrifying to the to those uh, academics at Princeton who should have been able to talk about it? So I'd like to go on to his next book, if I may. Sure. Okay. Uh, the next book was even more, I mean, he became, I think, very interested in, in things that people can't talk about. I, I, maybe he would not have articulated it this way, but most prophets tend to speak about the unspeakable. His next book was The Holocaust Industry, Reflections on the Exploitation of Jewish Suffering, in this book, he studied in detail the activities of some high-profile, high very powerful individuals who maintained that the Swiss banks were withholding money from Jewish victims of the Holocaust. And it sounds like it could happen. It sounds feasible. But they ended up collecting several billion dollars from governments in uh, Europe. And it wasn't uh, just... Uh, dispersed to Holocaust victims at all, and that was a pro- that was the promise in the beginning. They would collect this money and they would disperse it to Holocaust victims, many of whom lived in poverty, and they didn't do that at all. Instead, they used it to fund various programs. Very, some of it was pocketed by the principal players, uh, it, or it was used in various programs that oppressed Palestinians, or it was po- pocketed by attorneys. Uh, I mean, um, he really stumbled upon something that that needed to be talked about. But again, uh, nobody was able to talk about it in America. Now, outside America, it was reviewed everywhere. Like he uh, made a tour in Germany. Everywhere he went, there were overflow crowds who wanted to hear about it. Uh, The London Times uh, called it the most explosive book of the year. But in America, nothing. Why do you think that was? Because it was just too traumatic, really. I mean, I can't explain the behavior of the people that uh, participated in what really looks uh, like something, like a kind of scam. I I can't explain why they did that. Do you think it was a kind of political correctness on the part of academia, kind of... um, a, a guilt that America never spoke out during the Holocaust and for many years wouldn't accept uh, refugees uh, where they might have saved many. Absolutely. And it is axiomatic, actually, that anybody who becomes involved with the Holocaust and for fundraising purposes or for political gain, uh, it just distorts everything. Uh, and we, but we know that it's a little bit more than political correctness because, uh, if I can move to his career as a teacher at DePaul University, he's teaching there from 2000 to 2007, and he's denied tenure after a, a major attack by the Israel lobby. And he, after he's denied ten, tenure, then comes this uh, de facto blacklist. Mm-hmm. Uh, which still prevents him from teaching in higher in, high, in higher education. And it didn't happen because he committed a crime. You know, he didn't uh, abuse any students. He didn't abscond with the cafeteria money. You know, all the things that 
people could be charged. It was just the things that were in his book, in his books. And interestingly, nobody denies their factual correctness. Nobody denies his facts. They just criticize the fact that he exposed those facts. Mm-hmm. I think what uh, was... Can you, can you imagine the enormous fear that might be generated by this sort of thing? I think what was uh, interesting was that there was a lot of criticism in Israel about the same books that uh, Finkelstein was criticizing, whereas the American academic scene, uh, and, and I think you mentioned Alan Dershowitz, a Harvard professor, as, being, uh, as, as having come out with his own book that um, lifted much of the Peters material and that uh, Finkelstein demolished, thereby yeah. making him an implacable enemy. And since Dershowitz was um, kind of behind or, or a central figure in the Israel lobby, that got the whole lobby down on his back. It did. And Dershowitz is an interesting example of what can go wrong with such lobbies. He, he maintains that he's just another American liberal supports a two-state solution in the Middle East and so forth, nothing unusual. But liberals don't try to to interfere with the publication of other people's books. I mean, Dershowitz wrote everybody on the executive board of the California University of California Press, trying to get them to stop from publishing Finkelstein's book. He even wrote the governor of the state, trying to get him to stop the publication of this mm-hmm. book. That's not the behavior of a liberal Neither is Dershowitz's support for torture in in uh, Israel. Mm-hmm. But he maintains that he's a liberal. He's actually, I would say, close to being a neo-fascist. So, um, what what are some of the other stories in the book? What um, I, I know that you have um, the girl who stole my Holocaust, the the Noam Chayut yeah. story, was yeah. very powerful to me. Um, tell us about that. Extremely powerful. Well, here's a guy, a, a nice guy who's raised in uh, what passes for normalcy in Israel. It, you know, it's a state that considers itself to be siege, so there's a lot of aggression flying around. But he grows up, he tries to do his, to be an honorable person. But he realizes as a soldier uh, oppressing Palestinians in the West Bank that, that there's something wrong. But this this doesn't really penetrate until one day he sees a young Palestinian girl looking over his shoulder, her shoulder at him in absolute utter terror. And at that moment, he had an epiphany, and the epiphany is the Holocaust does not justify what I'm doing here. Mm. And I think, and then it took him a long time to process that. He had to go to and make the the visit to India, the you know, uh, and to think about what had happened. But he, it was a change. It was a psychological change, a psychic change that I, I think probably everybody will have to go through in that part of, of the world, or at least a sizable plurality of people are going to have to experience. You cannot use the Holocaust to continue justifying torture, murder, and uh, collective punishment of Palestinians. That's just the Holocaust by other means. 
And you would think that a people who had experienced it themselves um, and who put themselves uh, forward as compassionate um, would and and whose tradition came out with uh, Hillel's version of the golden rule, uh, do not unto others as you would not have them do unto you, would uh, avoid perpetrating it or, or, or doing unto others exactly what you would not want to have done to you. Yeah, uh, there's a certain social democratic uh, background to a European Jewry, a certain, certainly liberal or social democratic, and you would hope that that would last in Israel. But the state is based on religious nationalism, which is the most destructive force in the world today. But it wasn't always that way. The, the beginnings of Israel had a great component of idealism and, and really... Yes, absolutely. Uh, it, it was the only place that really provided a, a, a homeland for a people that were almost universally not wanted. Despised, yes. And, yeah, and it was just the country after country refused to take Jews. So it looked to those people, to the early Zionists in the period of 1947 to 49, that that was their only option. Uh, granted that that is true. But um, unfortunately, once you begin to begin to oppress, uh, it, it operates a little bit like an addiction. And I don't think there's any people in the world who will voluntarily give up oppressing another people. I mean, I, I am old enough to remember what the South and the segregation was like. I even lived there for a short time. And people who are oppressing another, another people just won't give it up until they're in some way forced to, hopefully, by nonviolent and reasonable means. But the fact is that, and, and we're just a few days past the birthday of Martin Luther King, the fact is yes. that we um, uh, have seen the expansion of the kind of courageous, um, right thinking that says, this is wrong, we can't do it anymore. And so this kind of grows into a new political correctness. Yeah. Well, I look at it a little bit uh, from a larger perspective. If you look back at in the 20th century to the Bolshevik Revolution, there were idealistic people all over the world who believed that this might be leading to a better way of life, to justice for workers and consumers, the whole, the whole ball of wax. But Unfortunately, that form of communism could not deliver, and so they had to find scapegoats, uh, the gulag, and so forth. And But it was hard for people who had invested their ideals in the Russian Revolution to realize at some point, gee, this thing has really gone wrong. There's something, mm, something yeah. wrong here. <laughs> well, we're going to have to pick up that theme when we come back from break. We're speaking with Larry Swaim about how Finkelstein broke the trauma bond and beat the Holocaust. Stay with us. Free your mind with Ohm Times Radio, IOM FM. Ohm Times Magazine is one of the leading online content providers of positivity, wellness, and personal empowerment, a philanthropic organization 
Their net proceeds are funneled to support worldwide charity initiatives via Humanity Healing International. Through their commitment to creating community and providing conscious content, they aspire to uplift humanity on a global scale. Om Times, co-creating a more conscious lifestyle. Join Elliot Jolish, the business therapist, each Tuesday at 5 p.m. Eastern for the Elliot Jolish Hour as he interviews business experts on your behalf. And you're invited to email your business questions to questions at ecjgroup.com for answers live on air every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Eastern on the Elliot Jolish Hour. Hi, this is Angela Levesque, host of Entanglement Radio. Join me Wednesdays at 12 p.m. Eastern for inspiring conversations with visionaries in spiritual science and conscious healing. Entanglement Radio, Wednesdays at 12 p.m. Eastern. Transcendent talk for the conscious mind. Being a radio host on IOM FM allows you to build your show on a rich platform with the power of the Internet to fulfill your outreach goals and connect with a very specialized and global online audience, unlimited by time and distance. Om Times Radio will provide you with web relevance, a recognizable conscious brand, and with the standard of excellence that has accompanied every single Om Times endeavor. Host your show with Om Times Radio Network. Connecting you with the best of the conscious minds in the world. Om Times Radio. IOM FM. Um, Larry, just before the break, we were talking uh, about the Noam Chayut story and this, uh, who is a, a soldier, an Israeli soldier, who uh, started seeing his part in creating the, the the fear and the terror in the Middle East, uh, instead of just seeing himself as the victim. And he was one of the founders of an organization called Breaking the Silence. Breaking the Silence, yes. Tell us about that. Well, I don't know a lot about uh, domestic politics in Israel, but I have followed that part of it. Uh, and unfortunately, Breaking the Silence is under attack from the right, which is getting stronger daily, it seems. And uh, the idea that is being disseminated is that if you tell the truth about what is going on in the occupied territories, you're a betrayer or uh, a traitor. So I'm not sure exactly. I don't know whether the the organizers of... uh, uh, breaking the silence have come up with a strat- strategy for this because they don't have that much access to the media in Israel, but they have they do have a following in the United States. Uh, they've uh, appeared several times in the United States. Usually, there's uh, some people from the Israel lobby who will be in the back of the room heckling, mm-hmm. but they have there's a tremendous authenticity in what they say because. They've actually shot down people. You know, they have killed people. And done this is an organization of former uh, Israel Defense Force soldiers. Yes, IDF people mm-hmm. uh, who are saying, you know, there's got to be a better way. And then they're talking about their experiences and saying, mm-hmm. this is not good for us. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, as Freud found out, people who are traumatized will cling to that trauma with the force of life itself, you know, and they offer a way out of the trauma, out of that cycle of violence, and out of the traumatic memory, 
the layers of traumatic memory that are occurring there by saying, let's talk about what's going on in, in, the, in, uh, in the occupied territory. Let's talk about it. But the people on the right, the political right, the Likudniks and, and others, don't want anyone to talk about it. And essentially what they're saying is they would like to impact the traumatic memory even more because it, they can use it to bond people to the Israeli state. Mm-hmm. There are so many resonances of that dynamic here uh, in America that we see particularly playing out on the political scene nowadays. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, well, it's very complicated in America <laughs> because a race is always a big issue in America. It always has been. The Republican Party has been sliding to the right ever since the so-called Southern Strategy you had the rise of the uh, of AM hate radio, then Fox News, and the Republican Party is going very rapidly to the right. Uh, in the base, you have these white neo Confederate men who are angry at the women's movement, angry at the at, uh, civil rights movement, and so forth. It's not going to be easily deconstructed because most of the people who are uh, involved in it don't see that there's anything wrong with what they do. I, but if you talk to people in uh, uh, breaking the silence, they understand that there's a problem. But I don't think that many of the followers of Mr. Trump understand that there's a problem. Do you think that he's using the the Islamophobia ploy um, simply as kind of a rabble rousing technique, or do you think there's real ideological uh, basis for it? Well, I see Islamophobia as very similar to anti-Semitism of 100 years ago. Uh, You know, when it was first being used in Vienna, you know, as kind of a rallying cry for A lot of people said, hey, it's just rhetoric. Uh, Even some Jews said that. Uh, You know, it's just rhetoric, it'll blow over, but this kind of hatred has a way of very quickly getting out of hand. And really, when, when he engages in Islamophobia, the real question is not, to me, is not who gets elected, but how far does this hate penetrate into the American soul and into the American dialogue? It, it really is playing to what Carl Jung called our shadow side. How do we actually overcome that? Well, uh, can I go back? Can I give you an example of something that was overcome from one of the chapters in my book? I yeah, please. I did it that way. Yeah. Uh, how about Jerry Adams and the IRA and the Troubles? Right. <laughs> one of my big cha- chapters in How Finkelstein Broke the Trauma Bond is a st- study of Jerry Adams uh, in Northern Ireland, who was a absolutely top commander in the IRA. During the 30 years of the of the troubles, uh, coming from a Catholic Irish nationalist family, going back to his great grandfather, father opposed the treaty signed by Britain and Ireland in 1922, as members of the IRA, you know, an illegal uh, formation, and the civilian party Sinn Fein. In a certain point in the 1970s, in the early 1970s, there were pogroms against Catholics. 
thousands of Protestants coming into Catholic neighborhoods in Northern Ireland, driving Catholics out of their homes. So the IRA members in Northern Ireland were convinced that to protect their communities, they would have to turn to armed, armed struggle. At first, they were, com they were non-sectarian, but at a certain point, they began to use terrorism, explosives in pubs, stores, other places like that. So, you know, a bomb will kill anybody, Catholic, Protestant, anybody. So, and furthermore, the people killed were mainly civilians. So if you look at the history of Ireland as mainly a traumatic one going back 800 years, this was just another layer of trauma on top of an already traumatic history. Um, so there came a certain point in the Civil War. First of all, it was something absolutely not nightmarish about. It was a very small place. People are killing each other every day for 30 years in these little narrow streets. Uh, in the past, Irish culture tried to de deal with this energy, energy with music, poetry, storytelling, religion, and sadly, with alcoholism. But as this war went on, it just became, it became so burdensome to everybody that at a certain point, uh, people had to consider a separate way, some kind of different way. There was an intense fetishization of violence, a death worship. There was even a fetishization of the Armalite rifle which was being used by the IRA volunteers. Uh, but same things started to change when Jerry Adams conceived the idea at one point of allowing popular commanders to run for office. Uh, he allowed Bobby Sands to run for office, even as he was dying on a hunger strike, and he won the election. But he died. His funeral attracted almost every able-bodied Catholic in Northern Ireland. So... Adams took a look at it and realized that IRA volunteers could run for office at the same time they were conducting urban warfare. And that through that door, they began to think about other ways that they could try to get, get their point, and a certain, uh, to make their point, rather. At a, certain, uh, at a certain point, IRA and Sinn Féin realized they could win enormous prestige by leading a movement peace. And it was his participation in the peace process leading to the Good Friday Agreement that won him the most fame. And the best part of it was that the British became the guarantors of the power-sharing arrangement that followed. And these same British deconstructed the laws and customs that were used by Protestants to oppress the Catholics. So even in the midst of this horrible urban guerrilla war, uh, Adams was able to imagine uh, the possibility of a better way. Mm -hmm. So the question then presents itself, how, what, what finally happened? Part of the reason was that the IRA was fighting so close to their enemies that they couldn't help but see what happened to them. You know, when they, when they shot them, they were using these Armalite 5.56 rounds and it just, just they did terrible things to the human body. And they weren't getting any closer to realizing their goals. And it was incredibly debilitating because there was never anything but war or internment for the IRA volunteers every day for 30 years. 
an IRA volunteer could never go on leave because there's no place to go. But what really happened was if you can use the addiction to violence, you know, if you can use the trauma that they were involved in, this quag- traumatic quagmire, if you can see it as an addiction, what they did was to hit bottom. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard that, but people who are in recovery from alcoholism and addiction refer to, to hitting bottom. Have you ever heard that? Sure. They're, they're saying that at a certain point, uh, people either die, they go crazy, or they choose recovery. And mm-hmm. that's, I think, what happened to the to Jerry Adams and the others around them. They just They just had enough. And so they begin to imagine, uh, to deconstruct this, all of these past arguments that they had made, that they wanted the six counties of Northern Ireland to be part of Ireland. They said, okay, we're going to give up that. We're just going to ask for better conditions on the ground and an end to religious bigotry against Catholics. And they clung to that, and it was that it was getting that that made peace uh, possible in, in the end, I think. And it's interesting that we just recently uh, signed a peace treaty or or some form of an agreement with the Iranian state, and the right wing is screaming out against it. But until you start talking at some level, all you're doing is perpetuating the the status quo. Yes, and uh, let me just mention that uh, the way to deconstruct traumatic memory like a trauma bond like this is a two-step uh, method that I that I uh, propose. It couldn't be simpler. The way you get rid of a traumatic memory or a trauma bond is first you talk about what happened, you know, what happened in the original traumatizing events, and then what, you know, you talk about it. And then you get involved in some kind of humanitarian effort that is in some way connected to the original traumatizing events. Mm. And they did that. They, they sat down in these uh, negotiating sessions. They talked about what had happened. And then they had to go out and engage in power, power sharing with these guys that had been shooting at them before. Well, we'll pick that theme up when we come back from break. We're speaking with Lawrence Swaim, how Finkelstein broke the trauma bond. We'll be right back. The Real Conscious Connection, Ohm Times Radio, IOM FM. The number one reason girls drop out of school in sub-Saharan Africa is lack of access to feminine hygiene products. The Pads for School Girls Project, an outreach of Humanity Healing International, is changing this paradigm by setting up sewing programs at schools, teaching girls a vocational skill, while producing the reusable pads that help keep them attending classes. The girls pay it forward by making and giving pad kits to other girls in need. To learn more, visit HumanityHealing.org. Humanity Healing is where your heart is. Hello, I'm Sandy Sedgbeer, host of the Inspired Parenting radio show, where every week we bring you empowering information from the diverse fields of conscious parenting, education, neuroscience, consciousness, health, and metaphysics to support you in nurturing the best in your children. So if you're interested in understanding what shapes your children's minds, spirits, and hearts, join me every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific time 
7pm Eastern Time and prepare to be inspired. Do you want to be a better communicator? Do you want to better connect with the important people in your life? Do you want to enrich your relationships? If so, join me, Matthew Cooper, on the Positive Control System Show every Wednesday evening at 11 o'clock p.m. Eastern Standard Time on OM Times Radio. I'll meet you there. Host your show on IOM FM, the radio network of OM Times Media, one of the more recognized brand names in the conscious community, and is backed by the extensive marketing reach of OM Times. Hosting a show on IOM FM immediately connects you with our extensive, dedicated community. The best of holistic, spiritual, and conscious world. Om Times Radio. IOM FM. About his book, How Finkelstein Broke the Trauma Bond. You know, one of the aspects of uh, the, the various stories that you describe in your book is this conspiracy of silence about what you call systemic evil. It's just not something that you talk about, and that enables it to um, to go either un, uh, unchallenged, unreconstructed. One of the stories that I found most affecting was the story of the Nanking Death March and, and Iris Chang. It really yes. is a, a very tragic story in the end. Very. Uh, yeah, I, tell us uh, about that. well, I, I had a whole, a whole book of stories of people that were able to break the trauma bond, but I thought that I should give an example of an individual who was not quite successful in doing that and lost her life in, in the effort to do so. Took and her life. That, course, yeah. Yes, and took her life. Um, that, of course, is the brilliant Iris Chang, who is very well known in the Bay Area here, whose story, whose tragic story is very well known. She was, um, and I always, ad- I always advise all of my friends who are journalists to read this chapter first, because um, <clears throat> she, first of all, had an undiagnosed form of mental illness, uh, late onset uh, uh, manic depression, or... Um, Yes, um, which she got at the age of 35, or which became obvious, became apparent to her and others at the age of 35. But she also uh, felt obligated to write about the the massacre uh, that you referred to. Uh, And in the process of, of, of writing about it, she went through phases where she couldn't sleep. She went for weeks and weeks. She was unable to sleep. Uh, her hair, she reported her hair falling out, she was depressed, she wept. Uh, you know, you have to question that kind of, uh, that uh, I see that as a red flag, but she was such a good writer, and she was so uh, so interested in getting to the meat of the matter that she was able to assume a fair amount of personal suffering to get the stories. So uh, her last assignment self-assigned, I might add, was the death march. Uh, She was working with uh, American um, veterans who had been on the death march, uh, and she was... was This was during World, at the end of World War II, with the Japanese invasion of China. Yes. Uh, 
and she, she was in the process of doing that, and things just caught up to her. She felt that she had to continue because she owed it to the veterans uh, whose story had not been told. She was under a lot of pressure. The State Department didn't want her to write the book because of various considerations. Uh, and she was under attack for, from a lot of different people. But unfortunately, she became quite paranoid in the last few months of her life. And finally, uh, in Louisville, Kentucky, she became psychotic. And um, this is because most people believe it's because of, of her bipolar disorder. Uh, she became so manic that she finally became psychotic. And she struggled with it, continued to struggle with it for three months and finally took her life. She, I can't say that she was killed by the darkness of the material that she wrote about. Her death was, I think, precipitated by mental illness. But it did contribute to, contribute to it, and we know that because she so often said that. And she said constantly that there was something about this uh, material that she was writing about that, that was taking her down. So there's a cautionary tale in that. Uh, I, I tell everybody who's a journalist or everybody who has dealt with the dark, the dark side of life, you have to take care of yourself. You know, you have to get enough sleep, food, and that sort of thing. Well, Larry, you've filled 700 pages with some pretty um, dramatic and, and I might add, depressing stories. What gives you equanimity? Do you feel optimistic about the future? Uh, I guess you could say that I have an essentially tragic view of life. But I think that the world is full of delights. It's full of challenges. It's a wonderful thing. I'm glad to be alive. But uh, in the in the near future, I think the better way to look at things is to look at what we can do as individuals. Uh, you know that that idea that we don't have to wait another day to do something good to make a better world in our small worlds, and that's the way I tend to look at it. Well, let's go back to your two points. One is uh, of how you actually break the trauma bond. One is, and, and I might add that we all have our own trauma bonds in, in our lives. So this is not just the great tragedies of history. This is all the little traumas that we've been through. So right. you, you've, you say, first talk about it and then take action. Expand on that. Yeah, some kind of humanitarian action. Um, Two-step plan. First, you talk about what happened in a clinical setting, if possible. And I think it's absolutely necessary. Not necessarily the clinical setting, but uh, if it is possible. Secondly, you try to get involved in some humanitarian activity that in some way relates to your own traumatic experiences. And the best example that I can give for that is the way that rape victims prove greatly by working with other rape victims to identify and oppose patriarchal attitudes. You know, uh, they benefit from working with other victims of rape to oppose the rape culture prevalent on campuses and in the military. Because now you're getting out of yourself and you're trying to oppose something that is in the world that hurts you. You didn't do anything wrong. It is rape that is wrong. And you need to try to oppose that in the world. 
uh, combat veterans also have benefited greatly from working together on veterans' issues uh, just uh, by things no more dramatic than demanding less of a wait time before getting into the VA system. Does mm-hmm. that explain it to some extent? Yes, and I think it's a, a wonderful, positive approach. And I can see it playing out on many different levels from the personal to the societal to the international is actually finding ways to, um, first of all, start talking. I I might add to the talking (laughs) the word listening because that's one of <laughs> that, sure. that's something that we do too much of uh too much talking and too little listening um and and when you really listen to the other side it opens the door to compassion to to getting into their space and seeing that they're not different from you that they have the same hurts and that you know they reflect the same traumas so the only way to break the trauma bond that that both unites and divides us all, is to take that positive humanitarian action in whatever sphere of your life that you can conceive. Oh, I agree completely. Um, Could I just define the word evil for a moment? Please. Okay. Uh, I believe that evil is aggression that is concealed, glamorized, rationalized, or lied about. In other words, covered up. In other words, it's Evil is aggression plus deceit. And we see a lot of examples of, of, of that when, uh, as people try to glamorize and desperately try to rationalize aggression. Uh, and I would say also that this, when the state adds out, acts out the aggression, it becomes then systemic evil when that aggression reaches that point. Uh, an interesting part of that is when the state acts out aggression and attempts to conceal it, that state will often invoke a shared traumatic memory, and that state will claim that the memory and the fear of it being repeated can only be managed by more aggression. Wrong. Mm. That's the wrong way to manage traumatic memory. One observable constant in the economy of aggression is that aggressors almost invariably present themselves as victims. Yeah, it's interesting. You talk about uh, the the Holocaust. Um, Here in America, our Holocaust was 9-11. And how often has that been brought up as the justification for actions that we know in our hearts are not right? Yeah, I'm not so sure that it is brought up that much anymore. Um, People give to people who want to justify uh, Islamophobia very often go to the right-wing websites and they have a whole set of talking points about why, why we should hate, why people should hate every Muslim. And it's an example usually of what I call the near-far fallacy. You know, they want to cite horrible things that Muslims have done overseas and then they want to use that as a justification for hating that poor Muslim family that lives next to them, you know, on Mm -hmm. the street. But that really doesn't wash. We have to look at every case by itself. There are good people and bad people in every group, and it is that uh, horrible tendency to generalize because, let's face it, people are full of full of aggression, they're full of anger, they want to blame somebody. So, Larry, is there a website that people can go to? 
Uh, I would refer them. No, not at this time. I'm going to be introducing a website uh, probably about March. But I I would suggest that they try going to my book because there's a lot a lot of meat in that in that book. Uh, <laughs> there certainly is. <laughs> some, some very interesting stories, and I don't think it has to all be depressing. Yeah. Well, that brings us to the end of our show. I want to thank Lawrence Swaim, author of How Finkelstein Broke the Trauma Bond and Beat the Holocaust. Very fascinating book. Thank you, Larry, for being with us. Thank you, Mary. And I hope you'll join us next week. In the meantime, do visit New Consciousness Review, and my website is ncreview.com. And uh, we have a wonderful magazine and our archives. Thank you for listening. Much love. Goodbye. Hello, this is Lawrence.